Hello, and welcome to the Smart Karma Podcast. I'm Michael Tegos. Every week on the podcast, we share a presentation and discussion from our webinar Wednesdays when we sit down with Smart Karma Insight providers and selected experts from around the world to break down the key topics you care about in Asia's markets. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and so on. Thank you for being with us and enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Smart Karma's Webinar Wednesday. I'm Michael Tegos. Today, I'm pleased to welcome to the webinar Hamindra Hazari to discuss issues of transparency and corporate governance in Indian banks, and specifically Yes Bank, Access Bank, and HDFC Bank. Hamindra has been actively monitoring this space for several years now, producing differentiated and hard-hitting analysis that has shed light on the sector as a whole. And I encourage you to look up his work on the Smart Karma platform if you haven't already. A few words about Hamindra. He is a research analyst registered with the Securities and Exchange Board of India with over 25 years of experience in the Indian capital markets, specializing in banking and economic research. He has worked with prominent foreign and domestic capital market firms such as UBS, Societe Generale, and HSBC, and is a regular guest on business media channels respected for his non-consensus view on stocks and the market. Hemendra, thank you very much for being with us today, and I'm really looking forward to hearing your view on this topic. So please feel free to start whenever you're ready. Thank you, Michael. Greetings to all those who have logged in on this webinar, and my thanks to Smart Karma for organizing the same. The topic of corporate governance and disclosures for this webinar is an issue much talked about today, and every prominent listed company publicly discloses that they practice the highest standards of governance and disclosure. It is left to analysts like myself to separate the fact from the fiction. There is an overriding belief that the capital market will reward companies for superior governance and disclosures and penalize those for lapses in governance. It was earlier hoped that once capital markets mature, and foreign institutional investors increase their exposure, better corporate governance would prevail. My research on prominent banks and financial institutions in India indicate otherwise. And one has seen that in a period of large foreign investments, many shortcomings have taken place in corporate India. This is despite regulation, which companies regularly and publicly state they comply with, and these companies are followed by an army of business journalists and sell-side analysts who are supposed to highlight any shortfalls in governance. At this webinar, I will be discussing issues at three entities in India's financial system. The downgrading of HDFC Bank's chief risk officer, the voluntary disclosures of 30 days past due loans by Yes Bank as compared with Axis Bank, and SEBI, the capital market regulator's settlement order with Deepak Parekh, the iconic non-executive chairman of HDFC and widely regarded as a doyen of private capital in India. Coming to HDFC Bank, on December 14, 2020, HDFC Bank informed the exchanges that it had shifted Jimmy Tata, its chief risk officer and group head to the newly created post of Chief Credit Officer, reporting only to the CEO. At the same time, it elevated Sanmoy Chakrabarti, Head Risk Management, 
to the chief risk officer reporting to the risk management committee of the board with a dotted line to the CEO. Chakrabarti, however, retains his designation as senior executive vice president and not group head. On December 23rd, 2020, an anonymous individual who tweets using the pseudonym Madanlal Dharia tweeted the screenshot of an email from HDFC Bank's head of human resources informing the recipients on the reportees to the chief credit officer and the chief risk officer. This email provided clarity on the future role and responsibilities of the chief risk officer and the chief credit officer. The email revealed that the reportees to the chief credit officer were all those who had earlier reported to the chief risk officer, with the possible exception of the chief information security officer. The reportees to the new chief risk officer did not include anyone dealing with core credit risk and underwriting. From the reportees to the new chief risk officer, it is apparent that henceforth the chief risk officer will only be managing market risk, operational risk, and secondary aspects of credit risk, such as concentration risk, stress testing, determining limits for company, group, sector, and geography, and policy making. The key part of evaluating credit risk, where one can raise objections, which could lead to the rejection of the credit proposal, had been taken away and given to the chief credit officer. In Indian banks, credit risk is the major risk. And in HDFC Bank, like other Indian banks, credit risk assets constitute 83% of total risk-weighted assets. In the organizational restructuring, the chief risk officer will now be responsible for only 17% of the bank's total risk-weighted assets. HDFC Bank defended the need for the organizational restructuring by saying it expected significant credit growth in the future, as consumer credit penetration in India is still low. In its future credit expansion, it wanted a separate vertical in the bank to evaluate the credit underwriting headed by a senior and experienced official who would be held responsible for approving credit proposal. And given the importance, the post would report directly to the chief executive officer. In the HDFC Bank's discussions with me on this subject, they had indicated that the new structure follows global practice. However, when Citibank North America publicly posted a requirement for a chief risk officer, it explicitly stated that a key responsibility of the post is to approve all Citibank North American transactions affecting the bank's business operations. Since credit approval is a critical transaction for the bank, it follows that it requires the Citibank's chief risk officer's approval. The issue with the new structure is that unlike the rest of the Indian banking industry, HDFC Bank has not had a credit quality problem. This demonstrates the stability and robustness of the existing system, whereby the credit risk was within the, the, chief, the CRO's function and the latter reported to the risk management committee of the board with a dotted line reporting to the CEO. Furthermore, when a bank is planning to step up its credit growth, a dual reporting structure ensures that the growth is on a prudent and sound basis. And it's extremely important for the risk management committee
to be monitoring and overseeing the credit growth. During a period of high credit growth, a bank should be adding filters to tighten standards and not remove them. Additionally, although a bank CEO is ultimately its super chief risk officer, he's also accountable for business growth and his and her remuneration and stock options are based on performance. By removing the protective layer of reporting to the risk management committee and reporting only to the CEO, the chief credit officer could in future be vulnerable to pressure from the CEO. The chief risk officer would be out of the loop and be responsible only for credit policy issues. And the board would be in the dark till credit becomes non-performing, by which time it may be too late. In June 2020, the RBI released a discussion paper on corporate governance in which it stated, quote, the CRO shall be a senior official in hierarchy with equivalents no less than those at one level below the whole time director stroke or the CEO. In HDFC Bank, the profile of Jimmy Tata, the earlier chief risk officer, was on par with the rest of the senior management in terms of designation, age, experience, and remuneration. However, in appointing Sanmoy Chakrabarti, the bank has retained his designation of senior executive vice president, which is two levels below the executive director, and not promoted him to group head. Indeed, on all the parameters, the new chief risk officer is the junior most in the senior management. The fact that the chief risk officer heads a truncated team has considerably reduced the importance of this key post. In 2015, Basel introduced corporate governance principles wherein the primacy of the chief risk officer was highlighted. Two years later, the RBI followed by issuing guidelines for the chief risk officer to be insulated from business and even pressure from the CEO to maintain the post independence. By late 2020, two prominent private sector banks, fully supported by the board of directors, have effectively taken away the largest risk in Access Bank only corporate credit risk from the chief risk officer and passed it to the chief credit officer, a role and position which is not mentioned in Basel and RBI literature, and made that position report only to the CEO. And all this is done in the name of improving the credit risk monitoring and underwriting in the banks. Now, mind you, nobody till date has highlighted this issue, although the tweet by the anonymous, you know, kind of whistleblower is very much in the public domain. Now we come to Yes Bank. A commendable feature in Yes Bank's third quarter FY 2021 results declared on January 22, 2021, was the continued level of transparency made available to investors on its asset quality, despite reporting the inevitable huge increase in stress loads. Most importantly, it also continued to disclose its 30 to 60 days and 61 to 90 days overdue loans first disclosed in its third quarter FY2020 presentation. And the capital market can take its call on providing estimates on the additional provisioning required. 
It is indeed refreshing to note that the bank which this analyst had earlier highlighted for its dubious accounting, lack of transparency in its asset quality, and poor governance under the then leadership of Rana Kapoor has, under a new management, come clean on its asset quality. With such disclosures, analysts can make their own assumptions to estimate the bank's additional provisioning requirements and its adjusted book value in order to determine Yes Bank's valuation on the equity market. In contrast, Axis Bank declined to voluntarily disclose its 30 plus days past due loans, a critical indicator which the bank had disclosed in its second quarter FY 2021 results conference call. Even though 30 day plus day past due is not a mandatory disclosure, once the senior management of a bank takes a decision to voluntarily disclose the indicator in a certain quarter, thereafter from a transparency perspective, the bank would be well advised to continue to disclose the number. By failing to voluntarily disclose the 30 plus day past due loans in the third quarter FY 2021, there would be a valid apprehension that the lack of disclosure is because of a sharp deterioration in the indicator, which the bank was uncomfortable in revealing to the market. As the data very clearly shows that some banks voluntarily disclose it, while other banks do not. Now we come to the Housing Development Finance Corporation of India, in short the HDFC. In a significant event, Deepak Parekh, the non-executive chairman of HDFC, agreed to settle with the Securities and Exchange Board of India in connection with the latter's investigation of non-compliance with the erstwhile listing agreement. Parekh settled the issue by paying a mere $12,727 US to SEBI without admitting or denying the findings of fact and conclusions of law. As per SEBI's settlement order, the capital market regulator had conducted an investigation into an intercorporate deposit of Rs. 7.5 billion extended by HDFC to Gliders Bincom Realtors, a group company of Piramal Reality in FY 2012. Sometime in FY 2015, at the request of Gliders Billcom, HDFC converted the intercorporate deposit into a term loan. Parekh was chairman of HDFC and was on the committee which approved the loan. At the same time, he also belonged to the advisory board of the Piramal Group, including Piramal Reality, for which he received advisory fees for the calendar years 2011 to 2015 and for the financial years 2017 and financial year 2018. The order stated, quote, HDFC has adopted a code of conduct for all its directors and senior management personnel in terms of clause 49.1D of the erstwhile listing agreement. However, the applicant failed to comply with the code of conduct of HDFC resulting in the violation of clause 491D2 of the erstwhile listing agreement. What is surprising is that an individual of Parekh's stature and experience in a company which is a favorite of foreign investors 
and professes to maintain high standards of corporate governance and transparency could have committed such a violation. Normally, board directors disclose their interests and recuse themselves from discussions where there may even be perceived conflicts of interest. In this particular case, Parekh was on the HDFC committee, which approved the conversion of an intercorporate deposit into a term loan for Glider's Billcom, while also accepting advisory fees from the Piramal Group. SEBI's settlement order throws a spotlight on Parekh's advisory role to companies, especially in real estate, from which he earns fees, while simultaneously being on the important loan community of HDFC, which extends loans to companies, many of whom are engaged in real estate. It is also disheartening that HDFC has neither publicly clarified this issue nor provided any explanation for the conduct of their non-executive chairman. The business media, apart from summarizing the SEBI settlement order, has completely ignored this event by neither analyzing the implications nor providing additional information. Given the iconic stature of Parekh in India's financial system and the prominence of HDFC, one expected the media and the sell side to further investigate and comment on this important development. Sadly, the state of business journalism and sell side research is such that when it comes to prominent companies and iconic business leaders, critical reporting and analysis are eschewed. The critical issue before HDFC from a corporate governance perspective is how the board of directors will view the payment by its chairman in the settlement of an investigation by the capital markets regulator. Although the settlement order clearly states that the monetary payment does not imply admission of guilt or wrongdoing, HDFC's own fit and proper criteria for its directors has a section on whether its directors, quote, have come to the adverse notice of regulators such as SEBI, unquote. As HDFC accepts deposits from the public, has a foreign shareholding of 72%, and is the parent of prominent companies in the financial system, such as HDFC Bank, HDFC Asset Management, HDFC Life Insurance, and HDFC Ergo General Insurance, General Insurance the conduct of its board directors and especially its chairman must be pristine. The role of, independent, of HDFC's independent directors and its nomination and remuneration committee in responding to Parekh's payment settlement with SEBI and his eligibility to continue as a director will be closely watched by the capital market. And it may also set an example of how boards should respond when faced with such a situation. So we have seen here in all these things which are specifically highlighted, is that none of these instances are really given any prominence, any not highlighted by the business media and by sell-side analysts. Now, all these companies are tracked by sell-side in excess of you know, 30 analysts. And there are numerous business media channels. 
but you will find very little of such information or analysis comes out to the public or to the capital market when it has to be, when it regards anything critical on any prominent companies in India, which are in fact heavily owned by foreign investors and other institutional investors. So with this, I really conclude uh, my presentation and now I will be open uh, to any questions. Thank you very much for this, Imindra. You have described what is a seems to be a very um, complicated situation. And I wonder, with a lot of this information uh, in the public domain, as you mentioned, isn't there any action being taken by regulators or uh, attention from uh, authorities in this regard? See, when it concerns corporate governance, the lapses may not be a violation of law. And therefore, mm -hmm. it really a lot depends on the conduct of the board of directors and by institutional shareholders in putting pressure on the senior management. And therefore, the conduct of the board is critical. And in, indeed, it should be really what we call the independent directors who should be taking, you know, who should be leading the vanguard uh, to take action against senior management where there is a shortfall. Now, if then when the board does not take action, then I would expect the business media and the sell side uh, analysts who are well trained in this, you know, to highlight these issues so they are brought to the notice of the capital market, and which in turn adds pressure on the senior management. But since, and I've noticed this, and this is you know practically a universal phenomenon, that the corporatized business media and the sell side they are more concerned with having corporate access. And indeed their revenue models are built on a close association with the companies they're supposed to cover. So as a result, the institutions like the independent directors, uh, the business media, the sales side, which are supposedly are going to be the watchdogs, uh, forget biting, they, they refuse to bark. And that is the major central issue that we are really dealing with. And therefore, all we have to depend on is the public commentary put out by these companies, which will always tell you that they are following the highest standards of corporate governance and transparency. I see. Have we seen a reaction from the market then uh, in, in terms of companies that are not so well behaved, quote unquote, uh, actually seeing consequences in the market itself? Sadly, in my own experience, the market is a very major disappointment because as I highlighted mm. in the beginning of my talk, one expected that as the capital markets develop and you have more foreign institutional participation and shareholders, one would have expected that the shareholders would take up such issues or where they found lapses would sell the shares. But when it comes to dealing with very prominent companies, I notice that everything is put under the carpet. Many a time, you know, I realize that even institutional investors don't want to hear this type of commentary. So only when, you know, a crisis suddenly comes about and then it is too public, like, you know, the removal of the Yes Bank earlier CEO, Rana Kapoor, by the regulator, 
you know, then the, everyone is forced to you know uh, see what is going on. But till that crisis publicly explodes, you know, nobody likes to highlight it. The market also remains quiet. So all the you know the safety mechanisms in a free market, which is which are there to to do their job, have actually for whatever reason have been deactivated. So there is no point in having a whole herd of journalists, regulators, analysts covering them. Uh, you know when they fail, that they deliberately fail uh, to see the early warning signs. Mm-hmm. Since you mentioned Yes Bank, what has been the reaction on the street from this move to be more transparent? Obviously, I guess the the entire saga of Rana Kapoor, which in fact you covered extensively on Smart Karma, could be perhaps viewed as an incentive for the bank to uh, to be more open and to uh, sort of put its house in order. But has it seen a positive reaction in this regard, or is it? basically perceived as a, a token action in a way? I think one of the reasons this new management, the new CEO, has been so transparent is because he wants to reassure all the stakeholders that uh, we are not the bank of the past, that we are a new bank. We are willing to disclose mm-hmm. you know, everything, even when the news is negative. We are willing to give it out to the market. And indeed, you know, in the latest results, the market uh, was not very happy with what it saw. So the market, in fact, penalized the bank because, it, you know, they, he showed and he uh, revealed a much higher number of stress uh, than what probably the market was expecting. So in India, you know, I don't know about the world markets, but I really don't see better transparency, uh, you know, improving valuation or less transparency you know, uh, taking a negative on the stock market. It all has to do, I think, more with like a herd-like instinct, that when the herd is positive on a stock, uh, they're not willing to listen to anything negative. And when a herd is negative on a stock, any positive move is not appreciated. And today it is really Mm -hmm. the, it is fundamentals are not playing such a role in the markets as they should. It is really the liquidity flows uh, which are ruling. So in such a case, you know, fundamentals and uh, events like better corporate governance really pale in comparison to the liquidity flows. I see. And Atendi asks, uh, why is the regulator so lenient when it comes to strengthening corporate governance and um, not levying sizable penalties on on those companies? Uh, you mentioned that a lot of those companies don't act, are, are not actually in violation of of actual laws, but should the regulator kind of try to be more strict in this regard? Most definitely, because I find that when it comes to dealing with very large, prominent companies or very important people, you know, it is a very feather touch regulation. When it comes to Mm -hmm. dealing with smaller companies, I find the regulators far more stringent and severe. But it is in the large companies which has the you know, maximum shareholders, stakeholders, which has you know, a large component of foreign uh, ownership. And it's in those companies where the regulator really has to crack down when they see you know, any lapse. And they, in, in, and they should be even more stringent than they are really with smaller companies. But what we have seen is the exact reverse. 
And that is indeed unfortunate because sometimes in the cases that I've argued, in the case of even Kotak Mahindra Bank, I, you know, there is a, con a severe concern that what we are seeing is regulatory capture. So these are very much the issues. And then, you know, when the whole thing just blows up one day, then people will start commenting that, you know, how lenient was the regulator. So these mm -hmm. are very much issues on the ground. But of course, the regulator will keep saying, we always, you know, pointed it out and they, you know, point your attention to some circular they had issued. The issue really is that you have to implement that circular, you know, stringently. And, you know, it should apply to all entities, big or small. We have seen governance issues rise to the top in several countries in Asia, actually. And in fact, in some markets, we are seeing uh, activist investors really go into boards and uh, trying to shake things up uh, and demand better governance. Do you see something like this happening in India uh, in these companies in the near future? Or is it kind of a different environment? See, when it comes to banks, which are heavily regulated, even to have a director on the board is not be an issue because the regulator has very stringent requirements. Mm -hmm. And there's a maximum, you know, holding that one can have on, on mm -hmm. any bank. So those type of investors, you know, first, you know, not only should they have a shareholding normally of below 10%, but they should have an, uh, uh, be able to appoint a nominee director on the board. Now, once you're on the board, you can do certain things. But in a lot of cases, I've seen that even when private equity who should be concerned with long-term value, and I've seen them on the board, sadly, I've not seen them being in a very active role. So for some strange reason, you know, I find that uh, you know, the kind of impact that they should be making, they are, they're not being able to make. Now, while it is true, there'll be some are, you know, activist investors who are having a positive role. But some of these instances which I've highlighted, I really don't see that activist role come from a lot of these foreign institutional investors, which was, you know, the originally this was envisaged. That's the whole idea of opening up your capital markets to foreign investment, that not only will you get more capital coming in, but they'll also improve the general governance of corporate India. But one has seen, you know, the kind of scandals one has seen in the financial sector, which, mind you, a governance should be of top order because they're highly leveraged institutions. You know, the kind of things have been shocking, whether you look at the conduct of Rana Kapoor, the see the state of ILFS, of uh, Chanda Kocha at ICICI Bank, or the conduct of Shika Sharma at Axis Bank. Now, all these one could have really seen at a much earlier stage, but Neither did the board take an interest, nor did the watchdogs, including the regulator and the business media and the sales side. Mm -hmm. Perhaps as a closing, maybe sum up, do you, do you expect moves like the one by Yes Bank to continue? Are you optimistic that uh, it will inspire more transparency? Or do you think that it's kind of an isolated uh, move? You see, the critical factor is, does better corporate governance drive fair prices? Mm -hmm. And, you know, is worse corporate governance is going to call share prices to fall? Because that is the ultimate uh, indicator that any investor will see. And sadly, I really don't see that correlation. 
So I think yes, bank mm-hmm. share price will go up only when you know the market is convinced that uh, they're going to report higher profitability uh, and uh, asset quality because in banks and financial institutions, finally, it is that performance. We may all talk of corporate governance, but uh, the sad reality is that the market is mainly concerned with seeing whether you can meet its profit number and its asset quality number. The market, in my view, is not very much concerned whether that profit number has been fudged, has it been got about by doing illegal and and unethical uh, business. As long as you are reporting that, it is okay. Only when it then things blow up one fine day, then everyone starts talking about it. And then again, it is forgotten. Because everyone in the end just wants to see whether that share price will fall or will go up, you know, based on performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll take one, uh, one last question from the attendees. Um, besides everything we have talked about, so the moves by the regulator, uh, rating agencies, business media and sell-side analysts. Are there any other steps that can be taken to strengthen corporate governance in these companies? I think institutional investors definitely have a role to play here because mm-hmm. uh, not only at the annual general meetings, but you know they have a lot of one-on-one conferences with the companies which they have invested in. And they should be severe, although, you know, what transpires is not public. I think they should, you know, take up these instances which have been documented and take it up actively with the senior management. And, you know, they should really be a force in which can change their behavior. I think that is of primary importance, apart from when everyone else doing their job. Today, the sad reality is nobody's really doing their job. And I would like to see institutional investors also in their meetings with the management take these issues up very strongly and if the management does not listen then they should you know just sell the sell the bank or sell the institution that's in the signal uh, to the senior managers because today by and large the senior management you know rule their companies like their personal fiefdoms they are really not really because nobody dares you know, say anything critical on them because the whole system has become so compromised. Uh, they believe that they can do what they want. And therefore, I think everybody, you know, some people have to really stand up and tell them, show them the mirror to show what they are doing. Only then can you have some change. But until then, you know, I, they will continue to do what they want to, they always wanted to do. Well, one person that we can always expect to be holding out that mirror to those companies is Himindra Hazari. And I definitely encourage everyone to keep reading his work on the Smart Karma platform. Thank you very much, Himindra, for being with us today. And thank you, everyone, for attending. Himindra is available for bespoke research requests. So if you would like to engage him directly, please contact your Smart Karma account manager, and they will help you out in this regard. And if you have any other questions, please email us at research at smartkarma.com. Himindra, thank you very much once again. Thank you. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please share it with your networks and follow Smart Karma on your social media. We're Smart Karma everywhere. And of course, don't forget to visit smartkarma.com for truly independent, differentiated investment research. As always, thank you very much for listening and see you at the next one.